Hello, and welcome to season two of We Can Be Heroes with Paul Burston. This is the podcast in which my guests are invited to wax lyrical about their heroes and heroines, people who've inspired them and helped shape their lives. I'm an author and journalist, and there are many people I consider heroes, both real and fictional, famous and not so famous. Among them is the late, great David Bowie. And each one says something about me, because the people we regard as heroes often reveal who we are, our strengths and our weaknesses, the struggles we faced, and the times we've shown courage we didn't even know we had. It's been said before, but it bears repeating, not all heroes wear capes. We can all be heroes, even if it is just for one day. When you listen to him, you don't know whether you're listening to a man or a woman. He can just break your heart with the songs that he sings. There was very little talk about gender politics. It was just about politics in general. I discovered that I was not cut out to be a radical. That was the thing. I just didn't want to have to go to all the meetings. There's been a big debate going on at the Edinburgh Festival this year about comedians getting cancelled because people are offended. I think everybody should be able to be offended. And so the director said, Adele, there's no easy way to ask you this. Are you a man? And I said no, because it was the wrong question. Because A, I certainly wasn't by then. B, I don't believe that I ever really was. I was a youth. That was about as far as I got. Well, I've said I told everybody I'm trans now. That's a bit boring. So I'm a cancer person now. We'll do cancer. We'll do cancer. My guest today is singer, actress, and my good friend, Adele Anderson. Best known as one third of Fascinating Aida, Adele has also performed on stage and screen, survived cancer, and continues to be a trans advocate. Hello, Adele, and welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you on. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, as you know, this is a podcast about people's heroes, heroines, icons, people who've inspired them. They can be a range of people, including famous people or people that you know personally, or they can even be fictional people. I listened to Juno's one, which was oh, did you? groups of people. I thought that was very interesting. Yes. Yeah. Um, actually, Joelle Taylor, who was the first guest that I recorded, she had a group that she called the Rebel Dykes, the lesbians who abseil into the House of Lords ever since oh, yes. and all that lot. You and I go back to that same time. I think I first met you in about 1988 or 89. Obviously, we were both children at the time. <laughs> so I have an idea of some of the people we may be discussing. I'm not going to preempt that. I'm going to let you tell hmm. me. Okay. So who is the first person that you'd like to discuss, Adele, and why have you chosen them? The first person on my list is my wonderful stepmother, Kathleen Croxon. She married my father when I was about 12. It's a long story, but he'd already been married to her sister beforehand, but her sister had sadly died. And she already had two children of her own. And she took on me and my brother and my stepbrother, and she brought us up as her own. And when I was 15, and my father discovered my horrible sexual secret, that I was not as other boys. He took me out of public school immediately, said he wasn't going to pay my school fees anymore, certainly not to send me to a single-sex environment where there would be temptation. So, uh, and he wanted to kick me out of the house because in those days, uh, 15, you that was the end of your schooling legally. And uh, he suggested that I become an estate agent. I do remember that. <laughs> <laughs> 
And Kathy said to him, no, I'm sorry, that's simply not going to happen. You know, he must finish his education. So I went to the local technical college, which had been fine for her two children. So I didn't see why it should be any different for me. And that's where I did my A-levels. But she absolutely put her foot down. And she didn't need to because, you know, she could have kept the peace. And after all, I wasn't her biological child. But she was a remarkable woman. She actually inspired a fascinating Aida song. Oh, really? Um, Yes, there's a song called One True Religion. We're pick and mix religionists uh, because she she believed in God. But she also believed in reincarnation. She'd occasionally trot along to the spiritualist church. But she moved to Glastonbury to live on the ley lines where she had a Native American spirit guide, as they all do in Glastonbury. And then she went out to India to the ashram of Sai Baba, who supposedly produced this stuff called Vibhuti, um, which was a holy ash that came out of the end of his fingers. And she never actually got a personal audience with him because, as was discovered, long after she had died, he had been known to um, have sexual relations with his certain young disciples. And I think it would have slightly broken her heart if she'd known that. Basically, her message was, we must love each other. I mean, it's a universal commandment, isn't it? But I do remember taking a couple of girlfriends who, you know, they were a couple to dinner at our house, and neither of them was out to their parents. And she just said, oh, dear. Oh, that must be so. Oh, no, you must do something about that she said, because she just couldn't understand, really, even though she was living with my father, how a, a parent could not accept, could not love their child. So due to her, I did complete my education. I wasn't thrown out on the street. I remember once being on the tube and I was being transphobically abused and this by this guy who sat next to me. And I just thought, because he was drunk, I thought, oh, I could just get his head and I could just smash it into that pole there. <laughs> and then I thought, but I don't think Kathy would like me to do that. She would like me to talk it out. So, no, that's what I did. So that's why she she's very, very important to me. Um, How amazing to have somebody so close to you at that age, because very few people that I know were lucky enough to have somebody who was so supportive of them at that age. That must have made a huge difference to your self-confidence. It did, and it didn't, because by the time I got to university, I was still as screwed up as ever about... <laughs> about my sexuality. And that brings me on to my next idol, who is, of course, April Ashley. I was in my first year at university. I went when I was just 17. When I was at public school, we all took our A-levels at 17, and then you did the Oxbridge exam for the next year. And, you know, I was in the drama department, for goodness sake. It shouldn't have mattered whether I was gay or not. But I was the only one in (laughs) in the department. And because my father had reacted so badly earlier on. In fact, he he taught me to see a child psychologist when I was 15, who suggested immediately that I should have a version therapy. Even my father balked slightly at that. Anyway, so something happened. I went to a party and I made an absolute idiot of myself and sort of outed myself. And I was so covered in shame that I I took an overdose. It wasn't a proper overdose. As my friend Shelley Bridgman, she said of her overdose, she said, I didn't want to die, but I didn't know how to live. And I think that's really what happened I just didn't know how I was going to go forward when I woke up the next morning I'd gone completely deaf with shock I think and uh, I remember they brought in the newspapers and on the front page was April Ashley and at the divorce courts and so I read about the whole thing and it obviously rang a bell with me because I had actually come out as 
trans when I was three, but then I was told it was, you know, that was in 1955. Oh my God, well ahead of the curve. (laughs) There was no such thing, no such thing. So I'd sort of suppressed it all. And I looked, I saw her in her beautiful fur hat, just looking radiant, going to court every day, long before I really knew all the details and what was going on. And I just thought, oh, oh, it, oh, it is possible. I remember the following year then at, at university, I got to play Claire in The Maids. And then that kind of started to confirm what I thought. But what I love about April is, A, it's just an amazing story that she was born in the slums of Liverpool. B, that she even survived being beaten up all the time. She knew who she was, who she wanted to be, and yeah. she revealed that person. And even when having these horrible things, you know, having three fingers stuck up her vagina to see if she was really a woman. And when she was spat at in the street, uh, when she lost all her modeling contracts, when the judge was so horrible to her in the court, she never broke down and she never lost her, well, certainly not in public, and she never lost her dignity. And she retained her dignity throughout her whole life. People say, oh, she really wasn't much of an activist. She should have done more. People say that. And she was, of course, A, by being really one of the first, B, by actually going through this divorce. Unfortunately, it sort of backfired for trans people in the fact that we then weren't allowed to get married, whereas people had been getting married quietly on the slide because there were a few people before her, but they were mostly upper class people who just quietly changed their birth certificates and got on with it. And then, of course, she did continue to write, certainly to John Prescott, because she shared a flat with him when they worked in a hotel together. She wrote to him about birth certificate. and Why couldn't she have a female birth certificate? It's just that it wasn't all broadcast all over the papers. You know, she was doing it quietly, quietly, quietly. And that's why she was honoured with an MBE in the end. And, and she got to have this exhibition at the Museum of Liverpool the remaining bits of her family still wouldn't speak to her even though she was now being fated by her own city she was an amazing survivor and I mean I don't actually know really how she lived because all she knew really was how to drink champagne and look beautiful (laughs) (laughs) but somehow she survived I think she was she was probably a Tennessee Williams heroine I have always relied upon the kindness of strangers I met her when that exhibition was on at Homotopia in Liverpool Mm. And Gary from Homotopia escorted her to a charity dinner that I was at in London. And I met her and she was everything you wanted her to be. She was exactly as I wanted her to be. She was just this grand dame, you know, she was so (laughs) elegant and so just splendid. In terms of what you said about the activism, I think in some ways, I know there's a big discussion there around Quentin anyway, but let's assume that Quentin was a homosexual male. She Mm. was the kind of trans equivalent because Quentin wasn't really an activist in the traditional sense, but he certainly changed the landscape for homosexual people just by living his life. So by being, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And she did the same really for trans people, didn't she? Yes. And she then went on to have a wonderful life with a string of rather gorgeous lovers. I did finally get to meet her. Uh, fascinating idea were performing at the Wonderground, whatever it was called, on the South Bank. And she came to see the show. And it really was, as you said, it was like, actually, by then, it was like meeting the Queen. And I don't think she ever had any plastic surgery to stop growing older. She just grew with her age and just uh, adapted accordingly. You know, apparently in private, she had a mouth like a docker, but, you know, (laughs) but, but 
But on the television, you know, the awful questions that people would ask her all the time. And she would always reply. She was just very, very, you know, just tried to keep her cool. And, and that's, that's the kind of trans woman that I've aspired to be. And again, I've sort of done it by, well, to, to blow my own trumpet, I kind of done it just by be, existing and being there and being on the stage. And it was only recently that I've actually started singing about it on, on stage. But that's for later on. I'll talk about that later on. She was a rebel. She was in her early life, you know, she, she was from Liverpool. OK, so she had been around the world a bit with the Merchant Navy. But then just to take yourself off to Paris, you don't speak the language and you have you've got no discernible talent from the sound of it. You didn't know what to do with her when she got to the, the carousel. In the end, they sort of got her to pose while somebody else sang, all I want is a room somewhere. And then to come back and be kind of a different person. Of course, you can't do that anymore because of social media. You can't just disappear and reappear as somebody else. Somebody will always find you out, as they did, of course, with her. And it wasn't that long. And as they did with me, when I joined Fascinating Aida, I didn't join as a trans woman. I joined as a woman. But pretty soon it, it all came out. So, yes. So I take my hat off to her. I think she's she was absolutely wonderful. What are the qualities that you most admired in her and that which you aspire to? What were the things that you learned from her? Well, she had single mindedness. She knew exactly what she wanted. As she said, if I'm not a woman, by the time I'm 25, I'm going to kill myself. And I think she probably would because she'd already had a couple of attempts anyway. She knew what she wanted and then she found there was a way to get it. And that's what she did. I think she had grace. She had beauty. Obviously, those were given to her by her genes. But she had dignity. She kept her dignity, certainly in public. It was just horrible what happened to her in that courtroom. The things that were said to her and what were said about her. Cameras being shoved in her face, as I say, people spitting at her in the street. And, and she just rose above it all. I think she went off to America for a little bit and then she lived in France somewhere and then, and then of course she became Empress of Hay on Wai. <laughs> she lived there for a bit. She did contribute obviously to the trans story in a huge way. She might have not have gone on marches or anything but she was certainly defiant. You mentioned earlier on playing a part in The Maids by Genet. Genet was a big influence on me when I was at college. My way into sort of the queer world was through Genet. I went to see Flowers by Lindsay Kemp, mm. Bowie, but the thing about Jenny, of course, is that all the characters are so miserable and self-destructive. Yes. <laughs> One really wanted to see somebody who was noble and dignified and had, yeah. you know, and she certainly had that. She Absolutely. Had... Yes. She had such a pure sense of her identity. When you consider that she transitioned when she was 25, went to a foreign country to do it, not knowing whether it would work or not in the very, very early days. And then she lived from that time on till she died at the age of 88 as a woman. And that to me means she was a woman. That was her, what her life was as a woman. And how courageous as well to have taken that sort of leap in the dark at that time, because as you say, there was, I know things aren't easy now for, for trans people, but certainly then there'd have been so few role models for her and also the path would have been so much more difficult than it would be now. It must have been incredibly challenging. Yes. And also, given that she was she did it from appearing in a travesty club in Paris. So there were lots of people in that club who, you know, they might have had their breasts done, but they were just rather like a lot of the lady boys of Bangkok. They were there as performers. Oh. It was only a very few of them. 
like Crossley Nell and Bombi, who really actually regarded themselves as women, and this was just a way of getting the money to do it. Most of the people were actually just showgirls, but she knew that, you know, that that wasn't enough. Because I remember when I was starting my own transition and I thought I'd better try everything else out just to make sure first. And, <laughs> and so for a while I tried being a drag queen. But when I had to take the wig off and take everything off, I felt bereft, really. You know. But then I thought, oh, well, maybe that's just because I was in a member of Gay Liberation, quite a leading light, apparently. Somebody turned up recently on my doorstep researching early Birmingham GLF and had the minutes of all sorts of meetings. And there's my name all over the place talking about this subject and that subject and organising a conference in Leeds. So then I tried being a, a radical queen because I thought having known that we were wanting to smash the patriarchy and we didn't believe in marriage and most of it. So I thought, and I'm actually on record in one of these meetings that I went to saying, I know there are people that, <laughs> that want to change their gender, but I don't think that will ever be for me. <laughs> I believe that you should just be able to express, you know, I mean, basically be, I was quite influenced by Betty Bourne and, the, you know, the radical fairies and blue lips and all that lot at the time. And that was, that was where I was at that stage. I think younger people listening won't be familiar with just how a large part of gay liberation at that point in the 70s was very, very closely tied up with radical drag. It was a big part of it, wasn't it? Mm, yes. But, I mean, there were schisms already. Lesbians left and formed their own group. And then it was just kind of the gay men. A radical queen was fine. We used to go into comprehensive schools and talk about these things without people demonstrating outside yeah. <laughs> who wanted to kill us. I think I was the only proper radical queen in Birmingham, though. And even then I wasn't original because I just copied the ones in London. But then, unfortunately, when I decided to transition, it was suggested to me that maybe... There were about three or four trans women in the group. And I think it was decided that really we should be going off to form our own group. I mean, now everybody's lumped in together and all these letters are in together. But in those days, it was very much separate. And also GLF, of course, was very, very concerned with socialism. There was very little talk about gender politics. It was just about politics in general. I discovered that I was not cut out to be a radical. That was the thing. I just didn't want to have to go to all the meetings. I just didn't want to have to think about it all the time. And if that makes me shallow, then I'm sorry. But, you know, that that was it. I just really wanted to get out there and get on and live my life. I got involved in what was then called gay politics in about 84, 85. I remember then that there was a big schism between men and women. There was the Lesbian Strength March and the Gay Pride March. I wasn't aware at that time, certainly in mid-80s, but by the late 80s, I was much more aware of the existence of trans people. And I'd met several trans women, including yourself. Hmm. So I became much more aware of that side of the queer politic, as it were. I think for many people, it was seen as very, very separate for a long time, wasn't it? it yes. Wasn't yeah. Well, I think a lot of gay people would still like it to be separate, really. Now it's turning the spotlight so much on the queer community again. I think it's all right if you're Harry Styles, who's just basically reinventing Bowie, isn't he? I think. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> or Mick Jagger or whatever. But I think a lot of gay people feel that they've moved on. I feel at the moment that trans people are sort of having to justify their existence. That seems to be the case. And that was the case with with gay people, they had to justify why they should exist, really, because they were frightening the horses. And now they've moved on from that. And I think they're rather exhausted by the fight. And now they don't want to have to 
anyone have to take it on again on my behalf. I do think it's partly generational, though, because if you talk really? to younger... Yeah, yeah, I've got okay. quite a few younger gay male friends in their 20s, and they're very, very, very engaged with trans rights. Right. Oh, good. Um, and they very much see it as part of their struggle. Who is the next hero heroine that you'd like to... Okay, so I'm going away from transness for a while you'll be pleased to know <laughs> i'm going to my other great uh, one of my great loves which is jazz and one of my heroes is chet baker the trumpeter i think i was first attracted to him because i saw a record cover he's known as the prince of cool he's the jazz equivalent of elvis really and he was beautiful oh yeah just exquisite yeah uh in fact they offered him a hollywood career he made a couple of films he makes his trumpet just sing it's so beautiful and yet he's got this rather delicate voice when he sings which is so sweet he was a hedonist as we know wine women and song and all the other stuff and yet when he sings you would think he was you know a really innocent 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 young man he's so delicate with the way he sings so I think the two are at odds with each other and his trumpet playing it's like a caress really you just want to melt into his music. I do a couple of the songs that, that I heard him do. One's called Everything Happens to Me. And indeed, it did happen to him. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of it happened to you. <laughs> Actually, but, but it did happen to him. And I've always had this thing, and it's ridiculous. I know the drugs are not glamorous. I know that. But a lot of the people that we are attracted to, like Jack Kerouac and all these people, or any a lot of the jazz musicians and Billie Holiday and all this, but seem to go hand in hand with drugs. And I've often wondered how people who are on drugs manage to create such beautiful art. Part of me earlier on used to think, perhaps if I took more drugs, I'd be more creative. <laughs> But I never, I never went there. I've never taken anything hard. I've never mainlined. I've never, you know, any of that. What I've found, if, if I'm ever a bit stoned, it doesn't make me more creative. And I certainly couldn't get up on stage and remember the lyrics and sing anything. Similarly, if I were drunk, I wouldn't be able to do it. But other people do. They've always held a fascination for me, these people. It's very compelling. It calls to you. You have to decide whether you're really going to go there and go along for the ride. And I, I never did. There's a, a bit of advice they give to writers, which is to write drunk and edit sober. And I kind of get where that idea comes from. But in my personal experience, it doesn't really work. <laughs> <laughs> you write gibberish, basically. Yeah. And then, of course, he then turned into kind of the Keith Richard of jazz because he became absolutely rattled when I look at his older face I'm reminded of two people Bridget Bardot mm. who always felt that her beauty was a curse and you know done nothing to preserve it and that man who's in fight club who deliberately goes out to destroy his beauty and he was so gorgeous and then he became so uh, sunken cheeked and of course he had that terrible period where he couldn't play trumpet because they think it was drug dealers he was being chased by I think some drug dealers to whom he owed money and he he took refuge in a car and the people in the car instead of driving off and saving him they kicked him out again and these people got hold of him and they kicked his teeth in and so of course he, he had no embouchure anymore and he couldn't play his trumpet it was quite a long time before he ever got dentures and then he had to 
relearn his embouchure. I can't remember now whether it changed his music significantly, but you know he certainly went through the mill. And then, of course, he fell out of a window in Amsterdam <laughs> and died. They don't know whether he was just sat on the edge of the windowsill and toppled over, or some other people say he locked himself out, so he was trying to get from one balcony to another and he slipped and fell. But he was certainly full of drugs anyway when they found him. As I say, there's a kind of mystique that goes with it. There he was in Amsterdam. He spoke fluent Italian because he'd done a lot of jazz there. He could have been one thing if he'd stayed uh, beautiful and done all of that. But he then sort of morphed into something which was equally, and some people would say, more interesting. And I guess he lived his life according to the rules that he wanted to live them. And it does reflect, and you listen to his later recordings, obviously the purity of the singing has you know, gone a bit, but that's what we love about Billie Holiday and people like that, when you hear the, the life that they've lived in their voice. So I want to leap on from him. Okay. Because I can't say any more about drugs, really. <laughs> <laughs> to another man that people may not know, little Jimmy Scott. He had success in the 40s and 50s. Basically, he had something called Kalman syndrome, a rare genetic order that limited his height to four foot 11 inches until the age of 37, when he grew by eight inches, which must have been quite a shock. The syndrome had prevented him from reaching classic puberty and left him with a high voice and unusual timbre. So he's like an early version of Michael Jackson. When you listen to him, you don't know whether you're listening to a man or a woman. I suppose in the way that Anoni, you know, when you yeah. listen to them, he can just break your heart with the songs that he sings. Apparently, one of the side effects of the syndrome is you have no sense of taste or sense of smell. So much of that part of his life was missing and that joy was missing. And he poured it, I think, into his music. I might be reading these things into it, but that's how it sounds to me when I listen to him. And he was sort of stuck in this contract. He was working with Lionel Hampton, good enough. But then Lionel Hampton released a track called Everybody's Somebody's Fool. And Jimmy Scott was the lead singer on it. And he wasn't credited as a vocalist. And then he did another one with Embrace For You with Charlie Parker. And his credit was given to a female vocalist. So he was constantly not being recognised for the wonderful talent that he was. I mean, this is an age-old story in the music industry, as we know. And then he signed with uh, Ray Charles's label. But unfortunately... He had already signed a contract with a man called Herbert Lubinsky. So his music was withdrawn and he fell into obscurity from about 1970 until 1990 when he was rediscovered and they started to re-release his music. And again, he had a very pure contralto voice, they call it, when he was young. And then he did a lot more recording towards the end of his life. And it's still high up there, but there's so much more pain <laughs> In the voice. And I do urge anybody, if you haven't heard him, to go and listen to him. Well, I haven't heard him. I'm definitely going to go and listen yes, to him. Yes, uh, he, he is on you on YouTube. It's just because there's such a schism, you don't hear the gradual move into that voice. You've got the young voice and then you've got the old voice. Because there's that gap in the career in the middle. Yeah, where nothing was happening. I think as a man of four foot eleven, life must have been very tough for him. And you have certain physiological problems. Apparently, people with Kalman syndrome tend to have undescended testicles, only one kidney, 
maybe sort of indeterminate sexual characteristics. And they're very prone to osteoporosis and they have to take all sorts of meds and stuff. So he had all that. And of course, I'm reading about it now where people know what it is and know how to treat it and what to do. But back then, I very much doubt that all that sort of stuff was around. He seems to me to be like an outsider and somebody who was not recognised for the wonderful talent he was until later in life. And I look now at these people who become famous when they're children, some of them, Justin Timberlake and all that lot, they went through the Disney club, didn't they? And then they sort of moved on. And they're so assured. They've got it all going on. They know exactly who they are and what they're doing. And I know, I mean, I thought I knew that I had it all going on. Once I started transitioning, I thought, oh, you know, that's it. But there's so much more in my life to come, so much more development, so much I've learned about my own singing voice, about my own presentation, all of that, which has gone on throughout my life and is still going on now. It's just lovely to follow somebody like Scott and see what happened to him and how he coped. And it's got a happy ending because he got the recognition he really fully deserved towards the end of his life. And sometimes that's when it comes. I think Fascinating Idea will truly be recognised after we've disbanded. (laughs) (laughs) She slipped in there. (laughs) I think you're worshipped now. (laughs) Unfortunately, life isn't fair. And you have to take the rough of the smooth and, you know, all those terrible cliches. I think some people think that you should be living your best life all the time. Yeah. Unless you've got anything to compare it with, it can't be your best life all the time because you can't be on a permanent holiday in the Maldives. Things have to happen in your life. (laughs) Otherwise, you'll never progress. It seems to me that young people now want to be shielded from any trauma in books, in films. They want to know if anything bad might come up that they're not going to like. Well, how can you know what you don't like unless you've seen it or experienced it? There's been a big debate going on at the Edinburgh Festival this year about comedians getting cancelled because people are offended. And I'm sorry to say, it was mostly the young staff that were working at the venues. It wasn't the public because the public knew what they were going to get. But it was the staff who said, oh, no, 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 we don't, we don't like that material. And I think everybody should be able to be offended What's the worst thing that happened? You're offended. Okay, well, then you wouldn't read a book by that person again, or you wouldn't yeah. go and see that show again. I'm sounding very old, Paul. I'm sounding very, <laughs> oh, in my day, it wasn't like that. You know, you could get your cock out on stage and nobody bothered you. I do believe very strongly that comedy, of all the different art forms, performance forms, comedy has to be allowed to tread a dangerous line. That's what it's about, isn't it? Surely. Of course, of course, yes. And as we know... The president of Ukraine is a comedian, so I know there is power in comedy. If you can make them laugh or you can make them love you at the same time. You know, I sing a song now in the show called I Was a Prisoner of Gender, and it's all about growing up trans. And I've never had a bad reaction to it. We've been doing it on and off for about 10 years now. Never had a bad reaction. People come up afterwards and say, oh, that was a very touching story. I don't think it is a touching story because... It's my story. And to me, it's a story of triumph. And they said, it must be so hard for you when you were young. Well, yes and no. I mean, I was a very privileged white middle class person. And I knew exactly how to access the facilities that I needed to get where I wanted to be. So yes, it's always traumatic if you're not being recognised as the person you know you are. But at least back then, I knew where to go, who to see, to ask for help and that there would be 
a result at the end of it. Unfortunately, for trans people now, I don't think that is the case. The whole thing seems to be in disarray. You know, some people, if they want to get access to begin the process, they're being told there's a three-year waiting list. And I feel very, I feel angry about it and I feel sad about it. I feel very sad for them because I feel that they haven't got the hope that I had. A lot of them have told me that they take great, particularly parents actually, when they've come to see the show, said they they take great comfort from my song. My father's raison d'etre when he tried to stop me being gay, as he thought I was then, was I thought I was doing it for the best because you would lead a happier life as a heterosexual. And I went, yeah, it didn't really work like that, you see. And I think parents are saying, yes, I worry for what will happen to my child because it's tough for trans people out there. But I see you, that you've weathered the storm. And I say, well, that is lovely. But I sort of, I feel like I... I got over the brow of the hill before the horde started coming up from the other side. It sounds to me as though what you're achieving through that song and those performances of that song with those audiences is what you got from seeing April Ashley on the newspaper. I'd like to think so, yes. And it wouldn't have got written if it hadn't been for my final hero slash heroine, who is, of course, Dilly Keane. Because when I auditioned for Fascinating Aida, our director at the time, because I had such a wide vocal range, she said, well, what's your range? And I went, oh, I don't know. I'll just start at the bottom and go up. And so the director said, Adele, there's no easy way to ask you this. Are you a man? And I said, no, because it was the wrong question. Because A, I certainly wasn't by then. B, I don't believe that I ever really was. I was a youth. That was about as far as I got. If she'd worded it slightly differently, I might have given a different answer. So And I thought to myself, well, if I don't get the job, I don't want to have to, you know, sit down and educate people. So anyway, then I did get the job. And then it was I was on the the horns of a dilemma. I spoke to several of my friends. I said, well, what do I do? I really should tell them. And they went, well, no, you got the job on your own merit. So you're obviously the right person for the job. So I didn't tell them. But they found out pretty soon afterwards because you can't keep these things a secret. Dilly met somebody whose sister had been at university with me and said, you've got such an interesting dynamic in the group now that you've got Adele because blah, blah, blah. And she was quite shocked by it. And she did a lot of research because her brother's an eminent surgeon. She did a lot of research. And she didn't find anything positive in that research back in the 80s. It seemed to be all doom and gloom and you know prone to suicide and, and terrible health problems. And then she was getting terrible pressure also from management who were saying, well, you've got a sacker. She, you know, she lied, you've got a sacker. And Dilly said, no, I can't do that. She's really good. <laughs> no, you can't, it'll hold back your career. If you want to be on telly or everything, you can't, you can't do it if she's in the group. And she absolutely dug her heels in and refused to do it. I mean, if she had sacked me, I don't think I would have had a career in the theatre. I don't really know what would have happened to me. She believed in me and she encouraged me. And being in an all-female group, with a female director as well. I mean, I'd been post-op transition for quite a few years, but this, in a way, really rounded off the, the, if there were any sharp edges, just really rounded everything off. So I became a a woman in a three-woman group. And when press would ask, or people would say, which one of you is the drag queen? I think somebody won't do. And And Dilly went, oh, it's me. I used to play rugby at Trinity. In the trans community, having trans allies, proper, proper allies, is so important to actually really stand shoulder to shoulder with you. 
And she has, she transformed my life, really. It was she who suggested the song Prisoner of Gender. And I said, well, why would, why would we want to write this song? Because, you know, we've, we've coasted along for 25 years or whatever it was, 35 years by then. And the story is, it's a three-woman group and I'm a, just a woman in the group and that's it. And she went, yes, but, you know, times have moved on and we're, we're always, we always need to be, you know, cutting edge. And I think it might be time. And I said, I don't think it is time. I don't want to do it. Well, she said, well, let's just see what we come up with. So we wrote a bit and then we stuck it in a drawer. And then I think it was when Chechnya started rounding up gays and torturing them and killing them. I said to Dilly, well, I'm in such a privileged position here. Nobody's going to do that to me here. I think maybe you're right. Maybe I ought to just, you know, stop pussyfooting around and just just stick my head up now. So we finished off the song and, and we did it. I remember the first time I did it, I was terrified. But actually, the response was so positive that after that, I never worried about it again, really. And as I said, in the days pre-COVID, when we used to go out and meet the public afterwards, I had so many people come up to me, you know, parents of trans children, you know, young children and um, partners of trans people, etc. So it had a very positive influence. But then I got cancer. And so when I recovered from cancer, we decided that actually writing a song about cancer was probably more <laughs> productive at that point, because we had quite a lot to say about that, because and we, you were there, you very kind, you know, you came to visit me often, but there were so many people who didn't know how to deal with it or would just say, you really should just be sticking kale in a Nutribullet and drinking that. And, and so that's the song we wrote, because that was a more interesting thing about me. Well, I said, I told everybody I'm trans now. That's a bit boring. So I'm a cancer person now. We'll do cancer. We'll do cancer. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then that show finished. And then when we were putting this show together, by that time, J.K. Rowling had happened and, uh, you know, and the atmosphere was just was so toxic. Dilly said, right, we're putting it back in the show. And I think because we've managed to tread a fine line, we make people smile and then we make people happy at the end of the song because actually we then turn it into a song for inclusivity. And it comes back to Kathy and the universality of just love, you know, treat others as you'd like to be treated yourself. I mean, you can't love absolutely everybody, but you can at least treat them with respect if they deserve it. And I think the only time they wouldn't deserve it is if they have disrespected you or if they are behaving in a very, very unpleasant manner. But otherwise, I just don't understand why people can't just live and let live, really. So she's the heroine I'd like to end with. That ties everything up so neatly. <laughs> about it for perfect circle <laughs> trust you to have prepared it all so well thank you so much for sharing these people and these stories with me i really really appreciate your candor thank you well as you know i've always done that when i've come to talk at polari and things as well yes There's no point in doing it if you're not going to be candid about it. and i think listening to some of the other podcasts, people have been really very open about their past lives and things. So I think mine has been rather sedate compared to... <laughs> Let's do <laughs> drugs now. <laughs> it's not too late. <laughs> uh, I think we better stop there before we yeah. start reminiscing about these things. But there we go. My thanks to Adele for being such a great guest. And to find out more about Fascinating Aida and their current tour, please visit their website fascinatingaida.co.uk
www.weconbehero.co.uk. Coming up soon on We Can Be Heroes. This is Neil Bartlett on We Could Be Heroes with Paul Burston. How did I discover Susie Sue? I've no idea, but that's how punk worked. The first time I heard Hong Kong Garden, just the rest was history. Seeing Betty walk across stage for the first time in a little red dress trimmed with tea strainers and a pair of second-hand red platform shoes, I think something inside me snapped, and ever since that moment, I've been a liberated person. This has been We Can Be Heroes with Paul Burston. Please subscribe and join me next time. Thanks for listening.